0: Well, this is the first time they've set me loose in the traditional setting Um, uh, this weekend. I'm really excited about it. I've been excited all week just to be able to come and spend time with you guys here in this room. Um, If you didn't know, I've been kind of over in the the new facility trying to get that thing up and running um, in the past few weeks, and our our team has done an amazing job. So I want you to know as a church, um, and, and this is for free, okay? This is not a part of the sermon, but... You know, we 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 are one church and we have many venues and many ways of worshiping God and many places for people to come and be a part of this church family, but we are one church. And so it's been so cool to see people all across this church, no matter what preference of worship, no matter what preference of room, no matter what preference of preacher or whatever else, we have come together to do something really amazing. And I believe that we're just scratching the surface on what God wants to do within the life of our church and in this community. And the fact is, I believe this community is going to change, and it's going to happen because of people like you. It's going to happen because of people who are disciples and who are all in for Jesus Christ, and not just this church, but every church in this community. Man, God is doing something great, and it's really easy to watch the news and see what's going on around the world and get really discouraged. But I don't want you to be discouraged today. I want you to see that God is on the move, and if we can have eyes to see it, we can join him in his work. And That's what we're talking about for the next four weeks. Again, that was free, but I, I'm just thankful to be with you this morning and to be able to worship together this morning. And I'm thankful that as we sit in here in this room, as we glorify God, as we experience him, there are people right across the way from us doing the exact same thing. And um, and we are one place, we're one church. And I should be proud to be a part of Mount Horby Methodist Church. I am, I certainly am. I wanna mention a few names to you. And I want you to give me your first uh, response, your initial response to these different names, okay? Bill Gates. Okay, this works best with... Um, If you talk after I, so let's try that again. So if I say Bill Gates, what do you think of? Money, wealthy, computers, yes. Uh, If I say Michael Phelps, what do you think of? Swimming, that's pretty consistent. Uh, Winning, yes. If I say Justin Bieber, what do you think of? (laughs) A quiet crowd, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, music at least, yeah, he's a singer. If I say Ryan Lochte, what do you think of? You are consistent with eight o'clock. Now the response that you just gave me from each and every one of these names, and we can name anybody, you probably have some kind of response to who they are, whether they're famous or at least whether you know them or not, and that response is consistent with who you see them to be. Their identity causes you to respond in a certain kind of way. Say Bill Gates, you say what? Money, computers. It's, it's what he's poured his life into. It's what he's all about. It's his identity. If I say Michael Phelps, medals, winning, Olympics, whatever, swimming. These are the things that he's known for. This is what he's poured his life into. This is what he's about. Justin Bieber, he's a singer among other things. That's what he's poured his life into. And Ryan Lochte, I mean, he's a swimmer, but also you get the, uh, because recently there's been a whole new identity he's kind of taken on that none of us saw. All of us have some kind of identity, and it's all evidenced by the way people think about us or things that people say about us. Now, whether you're famous or not, every one of us have some kind of something that we pour ourselves into or we're interested in or we give our lives to, and therefore, probably if you would ask someone around the community, they would know us for something. Hopefully, that's a good thing. For some of us, we're trying to live down those college days. We all have some kind of identity, don't we? When I was um, in August 2nd of 2011, August 2nd 2011, I gained a new identity, I became a new person, and that was the day I became a dad. See that face? That's the face of, you want me to do what with this kid? Take him home? (laughs) Keep him alive? I think I'll stay here. I became a dad on this date, and for nine months, I knew I was a dad. You know, it was was my identity. I didn't feel like it, though. I didn't feel like a dad because I was still like, I don't know how to do my own laundry. I don't know how to cook, and now I'm going to have a kid I got to take care of. This This is a bit above my pay grade. But I was a dad nonetheless. It was a part of my identity. And on August 2nd, when he was actually born into the world, my identity changed completely and forever. My identity was no longer Trevor Miller. My identity now was what? Eli's dad. And forever will be Eli's dad. My dad jokes all the time. Uh, My dad, Phil Miller, he goes to the church here. When anybody ever meets him, like, oh, you're Trevor's dad. He's like, oh yeah, I'm Trevor's dad. But it's his identity. That should be a good thing, dad. But we all have some kind of identity, some kind of thing that that really identifies us for who we are and what we do. And my identity as a dad spread very quickly after Eli was born, and, and probably because I actually spread that. You know, if you're a, a dad or a, or a mom or a grandparent in this room, if you ever had a grandkid or a kid, what do you do on your phone? You got pictures out the yin-yang. And if somebody will stand still for 23 seconds, you're going to have it out and be like, check this out. You wouldn't believe. look at him. He's, he's singing. You know, everybody's like but you can't help it. You're passionate about it, you love it. And so it's become a part of your identity. And for me, I told stories about you, like when he was a little baby, he loved to snore when he would sleep. It was like so cute. America's Funniest Home Videos, when he was 15 months old, was like his favorite show in the world, I don't know why. But to tell stories and show pictures like this, this, this actually defines our identity. This, this becomes kind of who we are and we do it because we're passionate because we love whatever it is. Whether you're Bill Gates, Michael Phelps, Justin Bieber and Ryan Lochte, or you're Trevor Miller or Eli's dad, You've got some kind of identity. Here's what I know from experience, and probably you do too, our identity is established by our passions. Our identity is established by our passions. The things that we are most passionate about actually define us. The things that we love the most are become the things that we're most known for. So as children, when we're born, we're known for, for little more than our names. This is Eli. This is Owen. We're known little more than that, but as we get older and we have certain interests and we give ourselves to certain things and we do certain stuff, we actually become known as much more than that. We take on new identities because new passions come along and new loves come along. So my question this morning is simply this: What defines you? What is your identity? Who are you? What do you give yourself to? Maybe it's just your bank account. Maybe it's college football or a significant other, maybe it's Facebook, or maybe it's the car you drive, the mistakes you've made in your past and you keep reliving them, or your humor, or your family, maybe your Pokemon collection. Some of y'all will get that on the way home. What kinds of things have you given yourself to? What's your identity and what defines you? These identities are established because we as humans have a tendency to give ourselves we go all in for the things that we're really passionate about. We go all in for the things that we really love. Isn't that true? There are some guys in this room right now that you would not be married had you not gone all in because of the love you had for somebody. Here were some women in the room that would have the same thing to say as well. I and mean, we go all in for the things that we love. Think about some of the people that you know within your life, whether it's family members or people that you live near. Think about some of the crazy stuff they do, the things they buy, the ways they spend their energy and their time. Sometimes you would look at me like, what, what are you doing? But to that person, it makes total sense. Why? Because they love it. Because they're passionate about it. There are some things that people love that I have no idea and no comprehension as far as why that is something that you care at all about. My son Eli right now, he's five years old, just had his birthday, his fifth birthday, and he got a basketball goal for his birthday and a basketball. And it, it, Reed Bull just said to me the other day, "It's crazy. he was right behind me, and he says, I hear your son uh, bouncing that basketball 24-7. And it's true. Now, unfortunately, my son has probably gotten the same kind of disease that I had when I was a kid, and he's a hobby kind of guy. There are certain interests that just grab a hold of him, and he goes all in for it. When I was a kid, I was into all kinds of different stuff. So at first, it it was about dinosaurs. I wanted to be a dinosaur. I didn't realize that couldn't happen, but that's all I thought about was dinosaurs. I read every book. I watched every movie I could. I thought about it all the time as I got older, it became about reptiles. I have three years of reptile magazine in my, in my attic still. It's an embarrassing thing to confess to you, but I'll do it for a sermon. I was all about it. I was all in. And then it became football. I ate, slept, and drank football. It became backpacking, climbing, fly fishing, you name it. If you'd ask my wife, she'd be like, yes, he has too many hobbies. And here's how I know I have a problem. Every time I have a new hobby, I'm the kind of guy who goes and buys all the stuff I need for that particular hobby, even though I'm not good at it. Anyone else in the room? Or if he's sitting next to you, you can point at him. Man, we go all in for the things that we love, don't we? I mean, crazy stuff. We'll do it because we're passionate about it, and it occupies our thoughts. Think about the greatest passion that you have. Think about how much time and energy and money and emotion goes to just those things alone. Because you love it. Because you're passionate about it. You know, four days from today, our nation will lose its mind once again over college football. It's amazing. And I would love to say and point fingers and make fun, but I'm one of those people. <laughs> I mean, in four days, people are going to spend amazing amounts of energy and money and time over guys and pads chasing around a leather ball on a football field. I mean, it's amazing and people will get up early in the morning and drive downtown to go to a tailgate all day long. They'll go sit in the stadium in September and sweat to death, and they'll watch their team lose probably more often than not, unfortunately, this year, unless you're a Clemson fan. And then after the game, they will spend hours and hours trying to get home from the game. It's it's a whole day affair. Can you imagine? If you were an alien who got dropped on this planet and were to see this happen, you'd be like, these people are crazy. But the reason we do this is what? We're passionate about it. We love it. For some people, you you become identified by this. You wear t-shirts about it. It's on your car. It's everywhere. The things that we're passionate about, the things that we love, we go all in for these things. And this can be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And this can also be an extremely dangerous thing. Because some of the things that we're passionate about and some of the things that we love is not worth our energy. And sometimes it's just a distraction. In the ancient Near East, during Jesus' time, there were were men that were known as rabbis. And a a rabbi was a spiritual teacher. And the spiritual teacher would teach to anyone who would listen to him his interpretation of the commands of God, specifically the law of God and the words of the prophets. These rabbis would sit down with groups of people and say to them, here's what this means for your life. If you're gonna follow my teaching, my way of interpreting this, this is how you need to live. Do this thing, or do that thing, or don't do this thing, don't do that thing. And these rabbis would have students, they would have learners, and they're also known as disciples. These groups of people that would follow them around and they would listen to every single word they said. Now, maybe when you were in college, you had a professor that you really looked up to. It's not much different than this. If you know David Olshine, one of uh, good friends of our church and was a professor at CIU, he was the kind of guy that I wanted to hear from. I would go and sit and talk with him because I wanted to learn from him. I wanted to learn the way he lived his life so I could live my life the same kind of way in, in most ways. But these rabbis, they would have different disciples and students and learners who would follow them around and find out everything they could from those individuals. There was an ancient saying even that said that these disciples, they were to be covered in the dust of their rabbi meaning they would walk behind their rabbi, rabbi so closely that literally on these dusty roads with sandals on, they would be covered in the dust where the rabbi walked. They said, follow your rabbi this kind of closely. you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi, and he was one of many rabbis. There was many, many, many rabbis who would teach many, many, many disciples many interpretations of the Old Testament, of the laws of God and the words of the prophet. And this rabbi Jesus, he had a following of people as well. You may know them as the 12 disciples. They would follow Jesus and listen to his interpretations on the way to live, and they would live them out because he was their rabbi. There's a discussion in the Bible in Matthew chapter 16 that we read earlier, and this is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who were learning from him, those who were who following him around and trying to find out the, way, the best way to live. And he says to these disciples, Jesus asked them in Matthew 16, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says this When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, his learners, his followers, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? I've asked this question before too. And if you're honest, you probably have as well. If not, at least in your head. What do people think about me? I've asked it a lot. Mostly not allowed, because that's kind of egotistical. But on the inside of my head, I'm always thinking it. What does this person think about me? What would they say? Uh, my wife um, is a realtor, and she was helping someone out recently. He's a good friend of mine. And I after she got home, I was like, does he like me? Like, did he talk about me? Are we, is he like hanging out with me? And like, why? Some kind of validation or something. I'm not sure what it is, but we all ask this question. What do people say about me? What do they think about me? And if you're a celebrity, people do it no matter what. We think all kinds of things about people. And so Jesus is asking this question to the disciples, and it's not an egotistical thing. He's not trying to to pad his stats or try to pat himself on the back. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to find out what the disciples think about him, not necessarily what everybody else thinks. But Jesus asks them, Who do people say I am? Now they're in a region called Caesarea Philippi. This is the most northern region that we know of that Jesus and his disciples actually traveled to. This was a Roman governmental seat. This was a very dangerous place to be as a Jewish individual. And so the fact that Jesus asks this question and the answers that ensue is a pretty dangerous thing to be doing in Caesarea Philippi. But Jesus asks it anyway. Who do people say that I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14 and 15, here's how his disciples respond. They replied some say john the baptist others say elijah and still others jeremiah or one of the prophets but what about you jesus asks who do you say i am so the disciples say here's what we've heard word on the street is this you're fun to be around you got a great smile a wonderful beard and you're good with children that's not what it says Who do people say I am, Jesus asked. The disciples say this. People are saying that you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, or you're Jeremiah. These were not by accident. These These are specific people within history, within Jewish history. Everyone would have known what they were trying to say when they're saying this about Jesus. Essentially what they're saying about Jesus is you're, the people are saying you're radical. That you're extreme. That you're dangerous. Think about John the Baptist. This guy loses his life. He's beheaded because of his um, kind of coming against the corruption of the day, called a lot of people out. And because of that, he actually loses his life for it. Think about Elijah, Old Testament. This guy called down fire from heaven and burned up all the prophets of Baal. And eventually he has to run away because Jezebel is so angry with him, she's gonna kill him. And think about Jeremiah, he was a prophet who came with a message to the Jewish people that was not um, widely uh, uh, excited about, because of it, uh, essentially he said, you've got to get your life right, you're messing up, and God's angry, and you've got to make things right. So the fact that the, they chose these three people to say that people are saying about Jesus, they're saying Jesus, people are saying you're like John the Baptist, you're like Elijah, you're like Jeremiah, you're dangerous, you're radical. And because they say this about Jesus, Jesus is asking, who do you say I am after this? This is a dangerous situation because basically they've got to decide what they're gonna say. Now they think he's a radical, they think he's extreme because at this point in time, Rome is is in control of all of this area. And the fact that Jesus is doing the things that he's doing, he could get in serious trouble for this and so could the disciples. So Jesus turns to them and says, who do you say I am? This is a loaded question. This is one of those questions that you know you have to answer, but you don't really want to for what it could mean. So Jesus says, who do you say I am? So who is Jesus? I mean, who was Jesus? This is an extremely, extremely important question this morning. For a lot of people, when they saw Jesus in the, Old, in the New Testament, they thought that he was a dangerous radical, just like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, who was there to overthrow Roman rule. And people would follow alongside of him and they could put themselves in serious danger because of the things that he was doing. But here's the real question. Peter's going to answer it in a moment, but the, the real question is, who do you say Jesus is? If he were standing with us here today, I believe Jesus would ask us the same kind of question. Who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? Within our culture, we get all kinds of feedback about who people think Jesus is. Most people would agree that Jesus was a real human being. A Barna research study said 93% of people believe Jesus was a real human being who actually walked the earth. But it's gotta go deeper than that. For a lot of people, they think Jesus was just a prophet, who had great things to say, who had an awesome beard, and that kinda of is all the further they go. For some people, they, they believe that he was dangerous and he was actually harmful to society. But depending on who you ask, everyone's going to have their own opinion about who Jesus was. When I was in high school, I went on a mission trip to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and we were staying near the Yale campus. And um, one night, uh, a friend of ours that was one of the leaders there decided to take some high school guys out onto the streets of of Yale University in the middle of the night and interview some people about Jesus, which is... (laughs) Um, I didn't know at the time, but dangerous. So um, myself, Nick Cunningham, and a couple other high school guys went out with this guy with a video camera, and we walked around, just found people on the street, and just started asking them questions like, who do you think Jesus is? What do you know about Jesus? And some of the answers I couldn't give you right now because this is family friendly this morning, but it was interesting, the kind of responses we got. And honestly, it was really troubling to me, the responses we got. There's a lot of misconception about who Jesus is. There's a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus is and it's for all kinds of different reasons. And at the very least, most people thought he was at least uninspiring and totally irrelevant to our lives, this Jesus. But I wanna tell you today that for you to answer this question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am, is the most important question that you'll ever answer in your life. It's a defining question. It's an identity kind of question. This question, who Jesus is, actually defines who you are as a person. It's a big deal. And so this morning, I want to tell you what Peter responds. Of course, he's the first one to speak up when Jesus asks the question, even though they're in a dangerous location. Peter, of course, is the first one to speak. And he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, here's what Peter says. Jesus says, who do people say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. I know people say that you're Jeremiah or Elijah. I know people saying you're John the Baptist, but here's who I think you are, Jesus. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the one that we've all been waiting for, for thousands of years to come and finally set us free. And I think you're the son of the living God. Essentially what Peter is saying, if you look at the Greek, he's he's saying, listen, you are God's embodiment here on earth. You are God present here on earth. You may remember Jesus' name means what? Emmanuel. God with us. And you can almost see Jesus shaking his head saying, yes, yes, you're finally getting it. You're the Messiah. You're you're the son of the living God. Now, the reason this was a dangerous thing to say was because if you're going to call Jesus the son of the living God, God's embodiment here on earth, guess who's not? Caesar. And in this Roman rule area, everyone bowed down to Caesar and thought that Caesar was God. Otherwise, you could be killed. So if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you respond to Jesus asking who he is, and you say, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, guess what? You are all in. You've got to be, because you know what this could mean for you. You know you could lose your life for this. You know the authorities could be listening. You know you could be arrested. You know this could not turn out well for you. You've got to be all in. When I became a father, if you're a father in the room or a mother in the room or grandparents in the room, when my son was born, I had no choice. I had to be all in. I was all in with my my pocketbook. I was all in with my sleeping habits. I was all in with any kind of personal time with my wife for the next 18 years. I was all in for it all. And I knew that. I knew that when this happened, this was me going all in for this young baby boy. And Peter, when he responds to Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah, you're the the son of the living God, you are God embodied here on earth, he knows that he's all in because he knows it could cost him everything. The way Peter responds, what he's saying is that Jesus is the king of all kings. And he's here on earth to supplant any kind of rule that exists here on earth. We need to understand something. When Jesus has this conversation with his disciples and they respond in this kind of way, these, these are real disciples. These are real followers. These are real learners. Not just in name, but to their very core. Here's what a disciple is. A disciple is a student of Jesus who's learning to live their whole lives under the rule and reign of God. A disciple is a student of Jesus who's learning to live their whole lives under the reign and rule of God, their entire lives, every part of who they are. This is what a disciple actually is. And by following this rabbi Jesus, you're getting caught up into this kingdom of God. You're getting caught up to what he's doing here in the world, and you have to be all in. And under the reign and rule of God means this, he gets to call the shots, not you. And for Peter, Jesus was the one who got to call the shots because he's the Messiah he's the son of the living God you see our idea of a disciple here in the west is simply this if you went to college you went to school of some kind um, your our idea of being a student and having a teacher or a rabbi it's you knowing what your rabbi knows so if I know the things that David Olshon knows I'm doing pretty good if you can answer all the questions on the quiz at the end of class you're doing pretty good In the West, it's about knowing what your rabbi knows. But in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' day, it was about doing what your rabbi does. That's different altogether. So as a Christian, as a disciple, our goal is not to have a bunch of information in our heads. Our goal is to actually live out the kinds of things that Jesus did, to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. I'm gonna invite to the stage really quickly my friend Wilson, or Zeka. Wilson, quick, run up here. Everybody give a hand to Wilson. Now, I want to, I've known Wilson for a very, very long time. He was one of my middle school students, then one of my high school students, and now one of my college students, and just an all-around great guy. But I want to show you something with Wilson. Wilson, do you trust me? Yeah. How long have you known me? Ten, ten plus years. Ten plus years. That's a long time, dude. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So what I want to ask Wilson to do is I'm going to ask him to trust me. Wilson, um, I'm going to you to turn around, put your back towards me, and I just want you to trust me and just fall backwards. Okay. Okay? Do you think I can catch you? Yeah. Do y'all think I can catch him? I hope so. All right, well, let's give this a shot, okay? So just turn, just like that, okay? Now, Wilson, on the count of three, I want you to fall back, okay? Very simple, and then I'm going to, I'm going to catch you, okay? Ready, one, two, three. Oh, pretty good, huh? Okay, so we're gonna try this again now, Wilson. Um, how long have you known me? A while. A while, okay, good. Um, do you trust me? Yeah. Like a lot? Uh, sure. Okay, I'm gonna go stand over here. Okay, and I'm going to count to three, and then I want you to fall, and trust that I'm going to catch you. Just kidding. Give Wilson a hand. Here, what I want you to see, this is what a disciple looks like. A disciple is someone who's willing to put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, you can say a whole lot of really great things about who Jesus is. I go to church every Sunday. Jesus is, he's the center of my life. Jesus, take the wheel. You can say all kinds of things about Jesus. But you know how you know if you're a disciple or not? Are you willing to fall back and let him catch you? Are you willing to really, really trust him with your life, with your family, with your finances? I'm gonna be honest with you. I'd love to say that I'm an awesome disciple and I do this all the time, but I am not good at this. I always revert back into wanting to control it on my own. Am I the only one? I don't think so. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard trusting Jesus. But I think what Peter tells us is that he is trustworthy. In fact, he's the only one who can truly catch us when we fall. He's the only one who can really control what's going on within our life. Why wouldn't we go all in for him? As a church, Mount Horeb, we are dedicated to making, maturing, and mobilizing disciples to magnify Jesus Christ. If you've been here for a while, you've probably heard that many, many times. If you your first time this morning, that's our mission statement. It's who we are as a church. We are here to make mature, mobilized disciples who magnify Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the only reason we exist. The only reason we're sitting in these pews today is for that very reason. The only reason there's a new building sitting right over there is for that reason, to make mature and mobilize disciples to magnify Jesus Christ. It's the only reason we met at eight o'clock this morning. It's the only reason we'll have a 1045 service in here today because we are disciples of Jesus Christ and we're to make more. It's the only reason any of this exists, that we worship God, and our hope is for all of us as we leave this building that we would be students of Jesus who are learning to orient our entire lives around God, his rule and his reign within our lives. Every part of our life. The way you're a husband, the way you are a wife, the way you are a parent, the way you're an employee, the way you go to a college football game, the way you go to a child softball game, Everywhere you are in everything that you do, whether it's at Bilo or at your workplace or at your home, we do it in such a way because we are underneath the rule and reign of God as disciples, and he gets to call the shots, not us. So here's the haunting question for this entire thing, for Peter and his disciples and for us today. If this is what a disciple looks like, if a disciple is someone who recognizes Jesus as a radical leader— who is serious about what he says? If a disciple is someone who orients their entire lives around the rule and reign of God, if a disciple is someone who follows the rabbi so closely they're covered in his dust, if a disciple is someone who doesn't just think the rabbi, way the rabbi thinks but lives the way the rabbi lives, the question is this: Are you a disciple? Am I a disciple? Am I all in? see it's not just about what your lips profess it's what it's about what your life suggests you can say all kinds of stuff but the question is how do you live does it look like a disciple see you being here as a disciple of mount Hor, what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks is we are someone we know who we are our identities in jesus christ it's about who it's about how we live the things we choose to do and not do it's about who we're with Who comes alongside of us and it's about what we do out of service for him it's all about being all in for Jesus Christ so after Peter responds to Jesus with this question who do you say I am and he says you're the Messiah you're the son of the living God you have full control you're going to supplant every other king and ruler in this world you call the shots not us we'll follow you then Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that very soon he's going to lose his life Very soon he's going to sacrifice it all. He's literally going to go to the cross and give up his life as a ransom for many, to rescue many. And of course, the disciples, they respond as anybody would, that would never happen. Jesus, we'll never let, you're our rabbi, we would never let anyone do that to you. And Jesus speaks to Peter with some very harsh words. Maybe you've read it before in Matthew chapter 16. What does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Man, if I was Peter, I'd be a little hurt. All I'm trying to do, Jesus is look out for you. And Jesus essentially is saying, Listen, you don't understand what I have to go through. You don't understand this has to take place in order for the world to be rescued. You gotta get behind me. I know you want to rescue me. I know I know you want to take care of me, but this is exactly what needs to take place. I'm gonna give up my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus basically says to Peter, The only way you could have known this about me, it's not from flesh and blood. It's from God Himself. God's revealed this to you. So the big question to me is what motivates a guy like Peter? What motivates disciples like these disciples to follow Jesus, even in dangerous places like this, to say the things they say about him? And I think it's because we're motivated by love. And disciples are motivated by love. As we said earlier, think about all the crazy things we do for people whether it's a loved one or a child, or think about all the stuff that we've ever, do, ever done. If you're a grandparent here today, tell me you've not worn something, bought something, done something, or said something against what you wanted to do because your grandchild wanted you to. If you're a parent in the room, tell me you've never gone to Bilo and said, all we're going is buying food, okay? That's it, nothing else. And by the time you get back out, your child in there, you come out with like fruit by the foot and all kinds of stuff because you just can't say no. We're motivated by love, aren't we? Almost everything that we do within our lives is motivated by some kind of love for something or someone because we're passionate about for someone or something. And here's the reason why. Jesus himself, the example he gives us of what it looks like to be all in is that he himself, motivated by love, stepped out of heaven, gave it all up, walked the earth as a human being, and eventually he gave his life up on a cross and he was motivated by love. In fact, 1 John chapter four, verse nine and 10 says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God first, but that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You wanna know why Jesus came? It was love. It was love for you, it was love for me. It was love for every person who would ever exist. And not just people, it was for all of his creation, the Bible says. He was motivated by love. The good news today is that there's a God in heaven. There's a God who's present with us right here, right now, who is motivated still by love for you, who will continually offer out to you the opportunity to become a follower, a learner, a disciple of him. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from the imitation is fresh today and it's all because of love you see a true disciple establishes an identity based upon what you love the most what you are most passionate about and it's an example that Jesus gives us who's most passionate about his people about you and about me i'll never forget when i was in college there's a movie that came out in the theaters called passion of the christ maybe you're familiar I'll never forget being very um, troubled in my heart to be paying money to go into a theater to watch a movie about my Savior, about Jesus. But as I sat in that movie theater and I watched the things on the screen, yes, it was Hollywood, but as I watched it, I saw for the very first time with my own eyes what it looked like for the God of the universe to come, become flesh, be arrested and beaten and crucified. It was horrific. I'll never forget after I watched that movie, some friends and I, we didn't move, we didn't leave, we didn't move from our seat for like 15 minutes. When I sat there, I just cried. Because at the time, I didn't feel worthy enough for Jesus to come do this for me. I'd be foolish to think that. And yet he did it. He did it willingly. He laid down his life for you and for me. That's passion. In fact, the word passion didn't exist until Jesus did what he did on the cross. They had to make up a word to express what this man had done. All motivated by love. Now for some of you in the room, you might be like, well, I know, I know you say he loves me. I don't feel like he loves me. I'm, I'm not even worthy of him loving me. Too bad. He loves you anyway. You can't stop him think about people you love and things you love, nobody can stop you. (laughs) What about the God of the universe? He's going to love you. As the old hymn says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If we are all in, if we recognize the love that Jesus has for us when we return that passion, that love, there are incredible things that could happen. When we begin to not just think like our rabbi Jesus, but when we begin to live like our rabbi Jesus, as we're motivated by love, we begin to see amazing things happen. And in turn, what happens is we begin to see that a disciple looks like a businesswoman who's really successful, who works long hours during the week, but finds time, makes time, to come and spend time with a child through our after-school program here at the church. She sits down with them and does homework and plays games and eats a snack and shares the love of Jesus with them. We find that a disciple looks like a college student who could do anything they want to with their summer, but instead they decide to raise their own money, fly to Alaska, never see the sunset for a full week, build a gazebo and some picnic tables for a ministry that's reaching out to homeless teens in Fairbanks, Alaska. We see a disciple Looks like a dad of four who all week long works his fingers to the bone and, and dads all week long. And then on the weekend comes and once again begins to show love and grace and mercy to other kids from other families here at this church. The disciples is a, is a retired couple who faithfully goes into the prison system and shares the good news of Jesus Christ through Bible study with those who are incarcerated. A disciple is a single mom who's about to go through chemo and yet finds time to make a Sunday school for other single moms to come and hear the truth about Jesus. know a disciple is a group of men who get up early in the morning on a Saturday morning to build a ramp for someone they've never met before who's wheelchair bound. That's what it looks like to be all in. We could go on and on and on about disciples here at this church who are doing great things, disciples around this world who are doing great things, but these disciples are students of Jesus who are learning how to orient their entire life under the reign and rule of God, and they're motivated by love. Their identity, who they are, is intertwined with Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thing. So Jesus concludes this conversation with his disciples about his identity by telling him that he's going to go and suffer at the hands of the authorities. He's gonna give up his life. Peter, of course, speaks up and says, this is never gonna happen. But in Matthew sixteen twenty-four through 26, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Do you see it? Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to really follow me, you've got to do the things that I do. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. This means we have to give up our comforts for the cause. This means that we have to give up our wants and our desires for his wants and his desires. We've got to give up our, our preferences in order to see the kingdom come here to earth. We've got to give up our rights to humbly serve other people. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and you've got to follow me. And this means that things have to change, reprioritize. Our lives have got to be different. A lot of things. We have to be ready for anything, including, as Jesus says, potentially giving up our very lives. Here's what's so amazing to me. The most paradoxical thing that Jesus says Listen, if you are willing to give up your life for my sake, guess what you find? Real life. Some of us, we believe that we have real life right now because we have a bank account that's full and we've got the house and the car that we want. Our family's all healthy. And the truth is, Jesus is saying, no, you find real life when you sacrifice yourself and you give up yourself for other people and for the cause of Jesus. Will it be painful? Yeah. Is it gonna cost you something? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I can promise you this, you will never feel more alive than when you're living your life for Jesus, when you are all in for the cause of Christ, when your identity begins to look a lot more like Jesus each and every day, when you begin loving people the way Christ loved people, when you begin sacrificing the things that you've always thought were so important, but you find you actually don't need them because you've found something greater. So what's the point, Jesus says, of all of us gaining everything and yet forfeiting our souls? so my final question is this would you be willing would you sacrifice who you are right now for the person that you could become are you willing to give up the things that you have now for the person that you could become the good news is that Jesus offers it once again today to follow him the question is do you want it do you want to be all in do you want to follow him with everything that you have and find true real life This morning, I wanna pray. I wanna be very specific in what I wanna offer this morning because I think Jesus would do the same. If you've never gone all in for Jesus, I wanna give you the opportunity this morning just to say, Jesus, you have all of me. I wanna learn how to live my life under the reign and rule of God. Maybe for you, you've been a Christian for a long time, but somewhere along the way, Carolina and Clemson, the passion for those things took over or whatever, and you've found that your passion for Jesus and your love for him has fallen to the wayside you can commit once again to loving him and being passionate for him. And lastly, very practically, there are people in Louisiana right now who are experiencing what we experienced just months ago, um, total devastation. And as you leave this room today, if, if you feel so inclined, if, if you are motivated by love as a disciple of Jesus and you would like to give something financially to help the cause in Louisiana, I'd encourage you to do it. And when this happened to us years, uh, a year ago or so, Uh, We were playing LSU, if you remember, and Louisiana showed us a lot of love. LSU showed us a lot of love. It's our turn to kind of repay the favor. So on your way out this morning, if you'd like to give practically to what's happening and God working in Louisiana, please feel free to do so. Would you bow with me? Let's pray together. And then we're gonna sing in closing hymn with one another. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your passion for us. So God, for any person here this morning that that has never been all in for you, God, would you move on their hearts right now? Without anybody looking or anybody watching, if you're someone that wants to be all in for Jesus, would you just raise your hand in the air so I can pray for you? Just boldly, just put your hand in the air. Amen. Amen. God, for these folks who wanna be all in for you, God, would you you move in their hearts, do powerful things. For any person here this morning, God, that has been living life for a long time and has loved you at one time in the past, God, but has seen their love and their passion fade, would you ignite it once again today? And for us as we leave here today, God, would you help us to be passionate about what you're doing for those who are suffering and in need in Louisiana, specifically, God. Help us to do what we can to make a difference. Lord Jesus, we love you and we need you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.